All right. Well, good evening. It's good to be in the house of the Lord tonight. Amen? Some of you are a little unsure about that. But it is good to be in the house of the Lord and uh, to be able to share here with you here at Salem. And I appreciate the opportunity tonight. I was delighted to uh, hear uh, Brother Tim, I think it was, that called and, and, uh, and said that they would be looking for a speaker this evening. And would I come? And so here we are. And so then it becomes a question of what do you share? And when you've been preaching for 30 plus years, why there's a lot of things that you've studied and share. But I like to keep things current. And so um, I would like to share this evening kind of a, 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 the climax of a, um, of a series that I did at Living Water over the last year. It was not uh, a, a, you know, every Sunday that I preached, but it was, it was a series on the feasts, the Feast of Israel. And uh, the uh, four historical feasts, followed by the three prophetic feasts. And uh, if you remember the feasts, what they were, uh, there was Passover. That's probably one of the most familiar ones to us. As Christ then uh, was uh, the substitutionary sacrifice for our sins. As the Passover lamb was the uh, illustration of that. And then, of course, the, uh, right alongside of that was the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and uh, that was signified the burial of Christ, uh, the sinless one, and how his burial was uh, in such a way that he did not see corruption, he was not uh, a subject to um, a decay, and uh, was uh, buried for our, our sins. And then uh, the third one was the Feast of, of first fruits, and we're probably familiar with that. As well, Christ being the focus of that feast as well, and signifying the uh, resurrection of Christ, and the uh, first fruits being symbolic that uh, the first of the harvest was brought in, guaranteeing that there was more to come. And Christ, the first fruits of the from the dead, are the guarantee that there is going to be a resurrection that will bring forth many, many out of the grave. All those that sleep in the grave will be brought forth, some to the resurrection of the just and some to the resurrection of the damned, Jesus said. Then there's the Feast of Weeks. Fifty days later, Feast of Pentecost, uh, we would know it also as the Feast of Weeks. This signified the wheat harvest and um, was again focused on Christ, the baptizer. Christ who baptized the church and the believer with the Holy Spirit, in the Holy Spirit. And so you have those four feasts which line up very, very uh, obviously to us with the four historical feasts of Israel in the spring of the year. And we get that. We get that. But what we don't get sometimes is the significance of the fall feasts. And uh, the fall feasts are kind of overlooked uh, by the church sometimes. And I'd like to focus on the last one today, tonight, and the implications of that feast and what Scripture says is the fulfillment of that feast. And so the, the first of the fall feasts was the, was the Feast of Trumpets. And, of course, that signified the announcement that the fall feasts have begun and, and, and you, you, you get ready for the Day of Atonement. And uh, it was a, a looking for the return of Christ. Feast of Trumpets, not hard for us to project onto that, that, the, uh, that corresponds in, our, in many of our way of thinking with the, the trumpet that shall sound. And uh, the dead in Christ shall rise, and those who are alive shall rise with them to meet the Lord in the air. We know that as the rapture of the church. Like Brother George Brunk used to say, if you don't like the term rapture because it's not in the Bible, uh, then, by the way, it is in the Latin Bible, in the Latin Vulgate. Uh, we'll just call it the caught up sure. And so, uh, because it does say we will be caught up. Uh, so we can talk about the caught up sure. But then following that was the Day of Atonement, or the Jewish Feast of Yom Kippur. And this signified the time of, of repentance, representing the coming of the Day of the Lord. When Israel would repent or will repent and recognize Messiah for what he is and has been, the one who they have held with contempt. And if you look into the Jewish feasts there uh, with the, uh, the Day of Atonement, uh, what they celebrate today is what they call the Days of Awe. And it's a time of soul searching. It is a time of trying to figure out if your name is written in the book of life or their name is not written in the book of life. The Jews believe that there are three books. 
There's the book of life. There's the book of life unto death. And then there's the book where you're uncertain. You just don't know. And so you try to make sure that you repent during that time so that you can know that you get pushed over into the the, the book of life. Now that's modern Judaism. Of course, uh, ancient Judaism, that was the time of the the, uh, uh, cleansing from sin with the high priest into the Holy of Holies. And you're acquainted with the Old Testament history of the Day of Atonement. Now, the, the last feast then, uh, and by the way, that's about Christ also. The feasts of Israel in the Old Testament are all about Christ. They're all about Jesus. He is the focal point of the feasts. And so if that's the case in the first six feasts, he's also the focal point in the last feast, which is what is today called Sukkot, uh, or the Feast of Tabernacles. Feast of Tabernacles is what it's referred to in the Scriptures. By, by the way, there were three times a year that all of Israel was to make their way to Jerusalem to celebrate the feast. That was the unleavened bread and the feast of Pentecost and the feast of tabernacles. All of Israel was to come to Jerusalem, and you know how it was. They were to dwell in booths, and uh, they were to erect some sort of a booth that they could uh, uh, sleep out under the stars and see the stars, see the heavens. And it was quite a feast. It was quite a celebration. Incidentally, the uh, Feast of Trumpets uh, happened at the new moon of the seventh month. They were on a lunar calendar. And so at the, when, the, when the new moon was and life and, and the month was at its darkest, then they entered into the Feast of, of Trumpets and into the Yom Kippur. The Day of Atonement. In the darkness, it was dark and, and it, was, it, was, it was judgment and it was repentance and it was, it was not celebration. But when you come to the 15th day of the month, I think that's when the Feast of Tabernacles was to be celebrated. That's full moon. And it's about light. And it's about celebration. And it's about rejoicing that God has historically delivered us out of Egypt them out of Egypt, and prophetically that Christ is coming to rule and to reign over the nations. And so that's what I want to talk to you tonight about, is about this ruling and reigning over the nations. So if you want to turn in your copies of the scriptures to to, um, Revelation chapter 20, when you talk about this rule and reign of Christ, uh, the number of scriptures we could go to, there's Daniel chapter 2. Uh, where the Bible says about this stone that would be hewn out of the mountain, which, by the way, is the final government of the governments of this world. There was Babylon, there was uh, uh, Medo-Persia, there was Greece, there was Rome, and then there is a final kingdom in Daniel chapter 2, where he says that to him, that is the Ancient of Days, the Son of Man... Uh, who came to the Ancient of Days, and there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom that which shall not be destroyed. Now you say, Brother Todd, the kingdom is now. Yes, it is, spiritually. We don't discount that one bit. To know that we are children of the king, we are living in the kingdom, a spiritual kingdom of, of Jesus Christ who reigns in the hearts and lives of his people. However, Daniel is not referring to a physical kingdom, he's, or spiritually, he's, I believe he's referring to a physical kingdom, a literal kingdom when Christ comes to rule and reign. He, he emphasizes this again in Daniel chapter 7, verse 14. Uh, excuse me, that's one I just read, Daniel chapter 2, uh, verse 44 and 45. And in those days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to the other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever and ever. And so he says that in relation to the, the, uh, the statue that, that Nebuchadnezzar saw in his dream. And so there's a number of scriptures you could look at, but we want to look at this evening, Revelation 20, verses 1 to 6. Because of all the prophetic preaching that I've heard through the years, the emphasis has been on either the rapture 
or the second coming, or the tribulation, but rarely, now maybe it's just the circles in which I move, rarely do I hear anybody preaching on the millennium, or what we would call the thousand year reign of Jesus Christ. What is it going to be like? What is it going to be like? And our text this evening, Revelation 20, says, And I saw an angel come down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit, and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent, who is called, or who is the devil and Satan, and bound him a thousand years. The Latin word is milla, millennium. Millennium is where we get the word millennium, a thousand year period of time. And cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal upon him that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years should be fulfilled. And after that he must be loosed a little season. And I saw thrones and they sat upon them and judgment was given unto them. And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God and who had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. But the rest of the dead lived not again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed is he, blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. On such the second death hath no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ, and shall reign with him a thousand years." By the way, six times in seven verses. It says in verse 7 again, And when the thousand years are ended, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison. Six times in seven verses, it refers to a thousand years. It's almost like God knew that people would question whether or not it was really a thousand years. But he kept saying it. A thousand years. A thousand years. Six times. So, with a literal approach to the Old Testament, a literal approach to the prophetic New Testament... In literal approach to the feasts of Israel, we can safely say that we believe that a thousand years is going to be a thousand years. That's what the Lord said. Now, what's this thousand years going to be like? And I'd like to see if I can get this going here. Maybe push that button. Oh, yeah, there we go. What is this thousand years going to be like? And by the way, the reason that I'm excited about this is because I find a great amount of discouragement among God's people. And the discouragement goes like this. We can get so focused on what's going to happen in the seven-year period of tribulation. We can get so focused on what's going to happen leading up to that. And depending on when you place the rapture, uh, halfway through or at the end or at the beginning, when you talk about the tribulation, people get fearful. Well, you don't need to fear if you know the Lord Jesus Christ. But nevertheless, you encounter a certain amount of trepidation. What's this going to be like? And is this going to be, is everything just going to fall apart? And for the Christian, everything's not going to fall apart. But in the meantime, while we're waiting for the re- return of the Lord, it, things, it seems like things are, some things are falling apart. And there's a great amount of discouragement among God's people today. Well, I think we, what we need to do is think a little bit more beyond the seven years and think about the thousand years. And be encouraged that the kingdom is coming. Yes, it is now. It's here. We spiritually, Christ reigns in the hearts and lives of those of his people. But there's something else coming that you'll have to go through, or or the the world will have to go through that narrow seven-year period of time to get to the kingdom. Are you with me? So we can be encouraged tonight. It's a little bit like Paul talks about in Romans chapter 8 about the the creation groaning and travailing. Groaning and travailing is a a term describing um, having a baby, uh, the birth process, uh, where you have birth pains. And the closer you get to the end, those birth pains get faster, they get more frequent, and they get more intense. And then the baby, the baby's born. 
Now, it took a little bit after our firstborn for my wife to think that all that pain was worth it. <clears throat> she uh, had never had that kind of pain before. By the time we got done with number five, she was kind of knew what was coming and, uh, and anticipated it. And, but on that first one, boy, it kind of knocked her kind of knocked her, set her back a little bit emotionally and said, wow, I'm not sure. But you know, when that baby comes, when that baby comes, all of the pain that you experience just kind of goes away and you remember the glory of this baby. Paul uses that as an illustration when he talks about the coming kingdom. The coming kingdom, when the creation, which is now groaning, will be liberated, and the sons of God will rule and reign with Jesus Christ. And I believe that when we get to that coming kingdom, and when it becomes uh, a reality, physically, literally, I believe that all of the dust and the, and the terror and, the, and the, the, the fragments of war and all of that will kind of fade into the background as people recognize Jesus Christ as the king. Well, we're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves, but when you think about a king, what would it take for you? I just want to ask you a couple questions this evening. What would it take for you to think of, of the world being made right? What, what would it take for the world to be made right, in your opinion? When we were on the road traveling with VSers, of course, after a while, you, you run out of things to talk about. And so we'd just talk about things anyway. And we had a lot of time living with young people. And so one of the questions that we would, we would ponder is, what would, what would we do with, with the world if we were God? <laughs> well, that was probably not a real good conversation piece. But it was made for some interesting uh, discussion. And we always came away from that discussion saying, it's a good thing we're not. <laughs> oh, it's a good thing we're not God because things would be a lot different. Uh, and it wouldn't be in a good way. It would not be in a good way. God is in charge. God is in control. But if you could imagine, what would the world be like with perfection? What would it be like? Some people may say, well, we get rid of all these wars and rumors of wars and international tensions and injustices and famines and inequality and all of those things. To get rid of all that stuff. Well, that, that, that sounds like it would be a, a good place to live, wouldn't it? If you didn't have wars and rumors of wars and international tensions and famines and injustices, maybe we'd get rid of some, some, uh, some, some bad politicians who abuse their power and lie and in some places of the world persecute God's people. Well, if we could get in a world like that, that'd be a lot better place. That'd be a good place to live, would it not? And so somebody else may say, well, if we could get rid of the sex trade, sex trafficking, slavery, People being sold on the black market. The oppression of various people groups. That'd make the world a whole lot better place. It would, wouldn't it? It sure would. And then other people may say, well, if we, um, if we had um, uh, things in place that, that there's no way that you and I can put, can put these things into place. And we just would have somebody who just make all the wrongs right. Well, that'd be a good place to live, wouldn't it? Well, when we think about and look at what the Scripture says about the coming kingdom, all of those things are going to take place. And it's going to be a place where Christ is going to rule and reign, and the peoples of the world, left over from the Great Tribulation, who have been spared, will dwell in that kingdom, and we will rule and reign with Christ. And so what you have there is the dwelling... In the kingdom, coming kingdom, the dwelling together of the heavenly and the earthly. That's going to be important when we get to the end of the message. To remember that, that the coming kingdom will be the dwelling together on the earth of the heavenly, Jesus and the church, and those in the first resurrection, and the earthly. Well... Let's look at what this will look like according to Scripture. There's four things that I want to leave that I want to give you tonight if you're taking notes. Number one is universal peace. Number two, there will be a, re, a, renew, a restored earth. 
Number three, there will be rejuvenated humanity. And number four, there will be renewed worship. Renewed worship. So let's look at this universal peace. Now in Isaiah chapter 9 verse 6, we know that unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. But what we often don't associate with that is verse 7. Of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. Upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever. That sounds like a good place that we might want to dwell in. Where the, the government will be on Jesus, on Jesus' shoulders. And all the armies that have ever marched. And all the kingdoms that have ever ruled. And all the kings and world leaders that have ever reigned on this earth, both past and future, will bow before him as king. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. So it will be a time uh, of a universal peace. Isaiah chapter 2 verse 4 says, And he shall judge among the nations, and shall rebuke many people. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Wow, that sounds like a good place, doesn't it? That sounds like, like Jesus has put down the opposition. And, and the beautiful thing about it is, is that the, the utopia that everybody would like to live in, will become a reality, but will be under the authority of Jesus Christ and not under the authority of mankind. By the way, let me hasten to say this as well. This coming kingdom, I don't believe, is going to be ushered in by the church. It's going to be ushered in by the king. Amen? Can you agree to that? There are those today who are called kingdom now theology Christian Reconstructionist, Dominion Theology, which believes that we're on the verge of a great revival that's going to sweep around the world and the church is going to get so filled with God that it's going to, get, that's going to take over the institutions of the earth. Seven mountains, have you ever heard of the seven mountain mandate? A lot of your charismatic theology and, uh, has, has, has become that and your dominionist, and your, um, well, anyway, that's another subject for another time. But be it as, as it may, they believe that the church is going to bring in the kingdom. It's going to get so good down here that Jesus can't help but come back. That's not the way I understand Scripture. The way I understand. Now, there may be a great revival. In fact, there is a great revival happening in many parts of the world. But it's not going to be such that we take over the institutions of the world and usher in the kingdom. The king will be the one who ushers in the kingdom. Amen? Can you agree with that tonight? He shall judge many people, and uh, I guess we already read that. Neither shall they learn war anymore. Zechariah 9, verse 10, And he shall speak peace unto the heathen, and his dominion shall be from sea even to sea, and from the river even to the ends of of the earth. The Middle East problem will be solved, for Israel shall dwell safely for the first time ever within the borders that God promised to Abraham. I asked Brother Paul, uh, Dr. Paul Hooley, who had just studied the Middle East extensively uh, while he was alive, I asked, Brother Dr. Paul, has the, has the nation of Israel ever fully encompassed the whole border that God gave to Abraham? And his answer was no. In his study, and as we look at geographical boundaries and borders and so on, under the reign of Solomon, they were close, but they never got it all. And so there's some outstanding promises that God is going to fulfill, and this is one of them. He's going to speak peace unto the heathen, dominion from sea even to sea, and Israel will be safely in its land. And God will write his law upon their hearts, and they, the people of Israel, shall serve Jesus as their king as a result of their genuine repentance. 
They will experience all the promises which God made to them that have not yet been fulfilled. And Jerusalem shall be safely inhabited. Zechariah 14, verse 11. The second thing that we will notice about the coming kingdom is that there will be a renewed earth. A renewed earth. Somehow, the... Actually, that should be a restored earth. There will be a restored earth. Somehow, the effects of the curse will be suspended. And there will be a great transformation of even creation itself. Romans 8, 21 and 22, Because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God, For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. And it's still groaning and it's still travailing. And it continues to increase in its groaning and travailing until the baby's born. And then all the eyes will be on the baby and not on the pain. It will be on the kingdom and the king and not on the dust and the, the scorched earth of the tribulation period Ezekiel chapter 36 says this thus saith the Lord God in the day that I shall have cleansed you from all your iniquities by the way who's he writing to he's writing to Israel he's writing to the people of Israel we have to be careful that we let Israel's promises be to them we can apply them to us but we have to interpret scripture properly and so um When he says, I will have cleansed you from all your iniquities, he's speaking to Israel, and I will also cause you to dwell in the cities and the wastes shall be builded, and the desolate land shall be tilled, whereas it lay desolate in the sight of all that passed by. And they shall say, this land that was desolate has become like the Garden of Eden, and the waste and desolate and ruined cities are become fenced and are inhabited. Then the heathen that are left round about you shall know that I, the Lord, build the ruined places and plant that that was desolate. I, the Lord, have spoken it, and I will do it. Whenever God says, I will do it, you better believe he will do it, even though we haven't seen it yet. Isaiah 11, verses 6 through 9. What do you do with these scriptures? What do you do with these scriptures unless there is a coming kingdom? The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb. There's going to be a harmony in nature that's restored that will be in in a similar restoration as Eden. The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb. When was the last time you saw that happening? When did you last see the leopard lying down with a young goat, the calf and the young lion and the fatling together? And a little child shall lead them. Children in the kingdom of Christ. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young ones shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play by the cobra's hole, and the weaned child shall put his hand in the viper's den. I would not recommend that today. None of this can happen literally today. I guess if you spiritualize it, allegorize it, and make it try to fit things spiritually into this you could say well I guess we are at peace with the world around us and Christ and so, but, but we got to do something with these these words <laughs> we got to do something with these words and so it goes on to say they shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea wow world missions wouldn't it be wonderful if everybody knew Jesus Everybody in the whole wide world, everybody knew his name, everybody worshipped him. Well, that glorious kingdom doesn't mean that all the earth dwellers will be saved, and, but they will, they'll know Jesus, they'll know Christ, they'll know who he is. He will be their king. <clears throat> Number three. There will be a rejuvenated humanity. Rejuvenated humanity. I tell you, the older I get, the more rejuvenation (laughs) this body needs. (laughs) Had to take a couple Advil tonight because of my back pain. Out shoveling snow yesterday. Came home from Florida too late. 
or too early, I guess. I need some rejuvenation. Well, there's going to be a rejuvenated humanity. Zechariah 14, 16. And it shall come to pass that everyone that is left of the nations which came against Jerusalem shall go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the feast of tabernacles. To keep what? The feast of tabernacles. We're going to keep that feast during this reign of Christ. Now, who is it that's going to be in this, in this, um, in, in this kingdom? Well, I already mentioned it. There's going to be those... How do you get that little nice, nice little dot up here? Oh, no, not that way. There's a nice little dot, and a red dot here somewhere. Anyway, on the back side. Ah, there we go. Everyone that is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem shall even go up from year to year to worship the king. Everyone that's left. Everyone that survives the great tribulation. We know it's not the unrighteous dead because our text tells us that they won't live until the end of the thousand years. They won't be resurrected. And we know that it's going to have some heaven, heavenly beings that are resurrected at the beginning of the thousand years. So they're going to be coexisting in resurrected bodies with these folks who were left of all the nations that came against Jerusalem. So you're going to have the dwelling together of the heavenly beings and the earthly beings. Now, I'm going to jump to the chase here. This gets me so excited I can't hardly stand it. I can't wait. When Jesus came on the Mount of Transfiguration, you remember that? He came on the Mount of what we call the Mount of Transfiguration, and his, his whole being was transfigured. It was transformed. It was, it was as bright as the sun, shining in its strength. And there showed up Elijah and Moses. Moses representing the Old Testament law, which was fulfilled in Christ. Elijah representing the prophets, whose message is fulfilled in Christ. And Peter blurts out. Remember what he said? Lord, let's set up three booths. Tabernacles. Booths. It's the Feast of Booths. Sukkot. The Feast of Booths, Feast of Tabernacles. Let's set up one for you and one for Elijah and one for Moses because we've got the earthly, us, and the heavenly here. We're going to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles and you don't have to go to the cross. This was right before the cross. And Jesus said, no, no, no. I've got to go through the cross because you've got to take the feasts in their order. The Feast of Tabernacles is not till the end. But Peter was not all that far off in what he was suggesting. If you don't understand what we're talking tonight about, you say, wow, what a weird thing to say. No, he was just saying, let's jump into the Feast of Tabernacles and celebrate the reign of Christ. Wait a minute, Peter. You're just a little bit too early. You're a little early. Now, doesn't that excite you? It should. Isaiah 65, 20 to 25. No more shall an infant from there live but a few days, nor an old man who has not fulfilled his, day, his days. For the child shall die 100 years old, but the sinner being 100 years old shall be accursed. Now, all he's saying is that a child that dies would be at 100 years old would be considered a child. A person that dies at 100 years old during this rejuvenated humanity where they will once again live like they lived in the Garden of Eden for long periods of time. A person who dies at 100 would be considered this child. And a sinner who was 100 years old and died would be subject to the curse. Say, well, that guy was a bad man. God cursed him and killed him. What he's talking about is the rejuvenation of time. There shall build houses, they shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For as in the days of a tree, so shall the days of my people. B. 
be the days of my people. And my elect shall long, long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain, nor bring forth children for trouble. For they shall be the descendants of the blessed of the Lord, and their offspring with them. It shall come to pass that before they call, I will answer. And while they are still speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall feed together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox, and the dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountains, says the Lord. There you have it, a renewed, a rejuvenated humanity. But that's not all. There's one more point, and that is there will be renewed worship. Renewed worship. Everyone will know the Lord. Jeremiah 31, 34, And they shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them unto the greatest of them, saith the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. And Isaiah 2, verses 2 and 3 says, And it shall come to pass in the last days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills. And all nations shall flow unto it. So this renewed worship will be flowing toward the temple of Jesus. And many people shall go and say, Come ye, and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us of his ways, and we will walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. In that day, there shall be a highway out of Egypt to Assyria. Now, folks, these things haven't happened yet. They haven't happened yet. There's never been a highway from Egypt to Assyria where Egypt and Assyria are both contributing to the welfare of the entire region, Israel in the middle of them. And this is what it says. The Assyrians shall come into Egypt and the Egyptians into Assyria, and the Egyptians shall serve with the Assyrians in that day shall Israel be the third with Egypt and Assyria, even a blessing in the midst of the land. Wow. That sounds like a place we'd want to live. Many people will flow to it. They will flow to it. And they say, well, Brother Todd, what about this renewed worship? If you take a literal approach to... to um, uh, to uh, a prophecy and the Old Testament scriptures, New Testament scriptures. What do you do with the end of Ezekiel? And I'll just say to that, ask Brother Jerry. <laughs> because to be honest with you, that's one of the things that I still wrestle with. What do you do with Ezekiel? Where in the new temple where Christ dwells, there will be a reinstitution of sacrifice, sacrifices. Well, surely that must be symbolic, allegorical, or is it? I've heard various, um, various ideas proposed. One would be that this would be Jewish worship as the Old Testament looked forward to Christ. This is done in remembrance of Christ, pointing to Christ backwards like we do with communion. I'm not sure about that. I don't know. I've also heard proposed that this would be for the ceremonial cleansing of the earth dwellers. So we got the earth dwellers and the heavenly dwellers, or the, the earth beings and the heavenly beings. Well, it's certainly not for the heavenly beings to be, sanct or to be ceremonially cleansed. But maybe it will be for the earth beings. I don't know. Quite honestly, I'm not quite sure what to do with that passage of Scripture. But I don't think that we have all the information that God will give us when we get there. So there's a number of ways of looking at that, but I do tend to think that it will be literal because of using a literal hermeneutic all the way through Scripture. So in that day, there will be a highway. Do you know how astounding this prophecy is? It is astounding that both these enemies of Israel the Egyptians and the Assyrians. And I am told by um, uh, some reading that I've done that the Assyrians were some of the cruelest, 
uh, people that have ever lived. They were, they were devastatingly cruel, even more so than the Romans. And for them to dwell peacefully with Israel and Egypt and work on a highway that brings all of the traffic and travel through that, 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 that uh, region will be none other than the work of God. So I do hope that you're being a little bit encouraged tonight that there is a coming kingdom where Christ will rule and reign over the nations, and we shall rule and reign with him. Say, what are we going to be doing during that time? Well, Jesus, or Paul, and Jesus talked about uh, the apostles ruling over the 12, sitting on 12 thrones. You remember that? The statement that Jesus made in Matthew, you apostles will be sitting on 12 thrones judging the, the, the tribes of Israel. And uh, Paul says that don't you know that even we will judge angels? We will be sitting in places of, of judgment and of leadership and of rulership in this coming age. And that will be measured out by our faithfulness in serving today. If we know anything, we understand that at the end of, uh, end of our lives, we will be rewarded based on our faithfulness and our works not rewarded with salvation, that's a gift from Christ purchased on the cross, but rewarded in terms of our service. And how we served God here will determine the level of service that we have in the coming kingdom. Paul makes that clear in several passages of Scripture. So I want to give you just real quick in the few minutes that I have yet, why a literal reign. I have found this to be very helpful for me in processing some of this information. Why a literal reign? Well, number one, it will reveal the kingdom of Christ in world history. We are a historical people. We have a history. And if you look back, there has never been a time when Christ has, when, when God has ruled authoritatively without rival since Eden. And to see history as a continuum and a, 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 um, a march toward the final kingdom, which Daniel talks about in Daniel 2 and Daniel 7, when this kingdom will be the ultimate resolution of the issues that we've had on this earth ever since Eden, ever since we were evicted. It will reveal the kingdom of Christ in world history. As we go on, that may be more significant. It will fulfill all of the promises that God has made to his people. Now, if we get to heaven and God says, you misunderstood me, you took me a little bit too literally, and there is no millennium, there is no thousand years, it's going to be okay with me. I trust that if a person is an allegorist, that they would also say the same, that when they get to heaven, if they find out there is a millennial kingdom, that'll be okay with them. But one of the questions, and I, I realize I'm looking at it from this side of the river and through clouded glasses and mind. One of the questions I would have for the Lord is, God, what about those promises that you made that never were fulfilled. Now, I wouldn't do that to judge the Lord because by then it won't matter and it's not our place to judge his ways. But it is an indication of God, are you faithful to keep your word even in the midst of the failure of mankind? Are you faithful? Are you faithful? And this literal reign will fulfill all the promises that God has made to his people, right down to the jot and tittle. By the way, let me say this. If you look at these feasts, they all happened 
right on time. When the feast was being offered, the sacrificial lamb was being offered, Christ was being crucified. At the moment when the feast, when, the, when they were offering the feast of first fruits, Christ was being raised from the dead. At the moment they were celebrating the feast of, uh, feast of, um, of, of weeks, Pentecost, the Holy Spirit was given. To the day, possibly even to the moment. And these other fall feasts are going to be fulfilled right on time, right on time. And will fulfill all the promises, all the types, all the shadows fulfilled in Christ as the king, including the promises to, to David that there will not lack to have of his seed to be a, a king on the throne of Israel forever. It will reveal the evil within the heart of man. See, these earth dwellers are still going to have unregenerate hearts. And no longer will be able to, well, at, the end of their, at the end of those thousand years, Scripture tells us that, that Satan will be loosed for a little while and go about to deceive those nations again. And so there will be a final mutiny. But what it will reveal to us is that man's, mankind's problem has not been his environment. It has been his heart all the way down through history. And this will reveal that it was not environment that made us sin. It was a choice because of the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, the pride of life. Number four, it will, point, it will reveal the permanence of the authority and power of Christ. The permanence, the permanence of that power and authority. I noticed the scripture in, in Revelation, excuse me, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 24 and 25. Then cometh the end, when he, that is Jesus, shall delivered, have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father. When he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet. And that final enemy will be death at the very end. And it will reveal the permanence of the authority and power of Christ and the authority, the unchallenged, never more to be challenged authority of God the Father. Number five, it will restore all that Satan and man and Satan stole from the beginning. Satan stole some stuff. We gave it to him. We stole it from God. He gave it to us. We misused it. We, we, we surrendered it, gave over our authority and our dominion and, 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 uh, and spiritual uh, authority, gave it over to the enemy. This brings it all back under the authority of Christ, under the authority of Christ. It will restore all that man and Satan stole. And number seven, six, it will right all the wrongs that have been committed upon the earth. There have been a lot of wrongs, a lot of wrongs, down through history. And all of the troubled spots that mankind looks at today and participates in and says, we wish we're different, but we're not one different, we don't wish that enough to give our lives to Christ. All of those things will come under the authority and be made right during this kingdom. And then one of the most convincing things for me is that a literal kingdom coming ensures that Satan does not have the last word. He does not get to have the last word. If, follow me, if everything that's happening is allegorical, and everything that we see in Scripture has been reinterpreted to be symbolic, allegorical, and there is no rain at the end, and it all comes under judgment, and it blows up with what I call the prophetic Big Bang. And there's immediately ushered into the eternal state. Then there is a sense that as far as this earth was concerned, Satan had the last word. He had, he'd had it so intently that God had to blow it all up 
and start all over again. I don't believe Satan gets to have the last word. God didn't let him have it in Egypt. God didn't let him have it at the cross. And neither will God let him have it in relation to his creation. The kingdom, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ. Revelation says. We've tried to give you scripture tonight. Scripture and scripture and more scripture. Trust that this has spoken to you. I'd like to leave you with one final thought. We talk about the coming reign of Christ. It will be glorious. It will be wonderful. It will be a bit of heaven on earth. And we can get so excited about that and miss the point that the question is Christ reigning in our hearts right now. Is Jesus Christ reigning in your heart today? The only way to be prepared for the coming kingdom is to get into the current kingdom. And except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And except we be born of water and of the Spirit, we cannot enter the kingdom of God. And so this evening, now the kingdom of God that we anticipate, the precursor to that is Christ ruling and reigning in our hearts right now, today. That's the way to get ready for this coming kingdom. I leave that with you as a challenge tonight. Don't get so hung up on this kingdom that you miss the next one. And don't get so excited about that kingdom that you miss this one. Christ dwelling in our hearts by faith. The kingdom of God in its spiritual formation in the hearts and lives of God's people today. Shall we pray? Thank you, Lord, for these pictures tonight from your word about the coming of the king. Lord, we do believe that you have come initially today into our hearts. You are ruling in the church. You are reigning in the church. We don't discount that one bit at all. We want you to be Lord, God, and king over every man, woman, boy, and girl who is alive at this moment. But Lord, we're also grateful that that points us to the rule of our Lord Jesus Christ over the nations. We want Christ to be exalted. We want the Lord Jesus Christ and his authority to be primary. And we pray as Jesus taught us to pray. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In the name of Jesus we ask it, amen.